The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled At the Heart of Obesity, Evidence-Based Strategies for Managing Obesity to Reduce Cardiovascular Risks with Weight Loss Pharmacotherapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DDA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, everyone. This is Jorge Plutsky. I'm the Director of Preventive Cardiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. I'm the faculty at Harvard Medical School, both in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us in this educational activity. It's designed to explore the impact of weight loss, pharmacotherapy on cardiovascular health and cardiovascular outcomes in people with obesity. Our goals for today are to explain the rationale for prioritizing and treating obesity as a serious, chronic, and progressive disease with plenty of cardiovascular implications and outcomes, share the mechanisms of action, efficacy, and safety of weight loss pharmacotherapy, and to provide strategies for using current guideline recommendations and the available evidence we already have and the evidence that's coming to reduce the impact of obesity-related cardiovascular complications. The mean BMI in the United States is increasing. Nearly half of all U.S. adults have obesity. This overlaps with conditions of overweight as opposed to frank obesity, and so many of the issues are the same. But here you see, in terms of obesity, these trends, in terms of BMI from 1999, 2018, and they've only continued, as you know, and we see those same trends related to severe obesity and even more consequence. Now, as someone, even as a cardiologist who's had a long-standing interest in this area, one of the things that was very impressive to me early on was just how many medical comorbidities and serious ones really relate to obesity. And of course, there are some of the obvious ones that we're all familiar with, like the relationship between diabetes and hypertension, dyslipidemia, the links between obesity and coronary heart disease, but it extends far beyond that. It's really impressive the extent to which obesity ends up impacting overall health, cardiometabolic health, and cardiovascular outcomes. And so it's not a leap to then recognize that early intervention could be essential for reducing the risk of these many obesity-related comorbidities because we know how these accumulate over time. Now, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, there's been a lot of work on, well, what is the nature of those connections and why is obesity such a major cardiovascular risk factor? Adipose tissue is a real source of mediators that can have a systemic impact on the vasculature. It can also have an effect on issues related to how we handle glucose and stimuli for atherosclerosis and its complications. A lot of attention-related inflammatory cytokines are implicated as direct mediators. We look at things like high-sensitivity C-reactive protein as this very strong link between diabetes and cardiovascular disease as it relates to obesity. Now, obesity also travels with risk factors like hypertension and dyslipidemia, sleep apnea, and others. And so you have a convergence here, whether it's related to this dysmetabolic state and these risk factors that culminates in cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease, acute complications from that, like acute coronary syndrome, heart failure, and atrial fibrillation, as we discussed, these really are all consequences of this intersection between being overweight and obese and how that 
ends up impacting the cardiovascular system. Now, because the armamentarium we have and the therapies we have have expanded, what goes hand in hand with that is increasing clinical trial evidence for how interventions on weight may impact outcomes. A lot of exciting data to come. We've had top-line announce of some of those studies, and we'll have more updates very soon. So here's one example of data showing a relationship between lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease, morbidity, and mortality, according to BMI. So these are middle-aged men and looking at their follow-up over ensuing decades. As you move up on the left side here from the blue line up, you can see as you move from underweight to obese and morbidly obese, you get a real segregation of increasing risk as a function of obesity. And we see similar sorts of trends in middle-aged women. Even with all this evidence and sort of straightforward, intuitive connections between obesity and cardiovascular disease, the fact is that many patients who have overweight and obesity never receive that as a formal diagnosis or are not getting attention from the people providing their cardiovascular care about how obesity may be a risk issue with that. And there's no doubt that cardiologists and cardiology practices can improve patient outcomes by being part of initiating the discussion about obesity and how that's related to cardiovascular health. But just initiating that conversation is really important because as someone helping provide cardiovascular care, your guidance around that really does matter. Now, of course, one of the questions is, well, just how much weight loss is needed to improve health, cardiovascular health, and reduce cardiovascular risk? I would say another thing that has always been very impressive to me is the extent to which one sees many risk factors beginning to improve with even modest weight reduction. But it's helpful to point out that even just those initial directionality of some weight loss starts to improve health, that it may be rather than just you know a 5% weight loss as one gets to higher percentages the weight loss, 10%, that there's more and more evidence that the disease process is reversing. And then with more significant weight loss is where we've more evidence and we'll have more evidence about the reduction of cardiovascular events and complications, getting to that 15% weight reduction. So obesity is a very complex issue, is often the tip of the iceberg of many, many inputs. Some of those just have to do with biology and the physiology and how we're programmed to hang on to calories and energy. There are major behavioral components. We know there are many genetic inputs that are major factors. And then environmental inputs are all things that are quite relevant. And recognizing this and that it's not just an issue of willpower and being much more careful about not just blaming the patient of really, you should just eat less and exercise more, but recognizing all these inputs can be an important step in terms of gauging with the patient, not having them feel judged about the obesity issue. So there are many pillars, and I think it's important that it's not just one of these, but really thinking about all of them. And that includes, of course, pharmacotherapy. And that pharmacotherapy is very relevant for cardiologists. I mean, we're really well positioned in our practices to counsel individuals about how the obesity is having direct and indirect effects that impact cardiovascular outcomes, morbidity, and even mortality, and that these effects are very relevant for ultimately losing weight and maintaining that weight loss, as we'll touch upon, and that these span patients that we see who have not had a cardiovascular event as cardiologists that sometimes referred for hypertension control, referred for atrial fibrillation, referred for risk evaluation prior to other surgery. There are many reasons why we might see patients who have not yet had a cardiovascular event 
those are real opportunities to make an intervention and harness these many tools that start engaging with this conversation of, you know, I think it's okay for you to undergo your hip surgery or whatever other procedure, but in the long term, I think there's a lot of ground to be gained for you and could improve many aspects of your overall risk that involve these tools. And of course, one of them is these AOMs, these anti-obesity medications. We know that anti-obesity medications can help in this regard, and here are some of the consensus inputs around this. When a patient doesn't yet have any obesity-related complications, you still might consider an anti-obesity medication if lifestyle intervention has not been effective and the BMI is significant, greater than or equal to 30 kilograms per meter squared. We feel like the timelines are shorter and the pressure is greater when there's one or more obesity-related complications. And now you see the recommendation being considering pharmacotherapy if the BMI is greater than or equal to 27. And if there's more than one severe obesity-related complication, then you're getting more directed input about adding this to lifestyle interventions when the BMI is greater than or equal to 27. So we've had a variety of drugs out there and available as anti-obesity medications. Many of these really were working centrally on affecting some of the reward centers with effects on decreasing weight, now Truxone, bupropion being an example, fentramine, topiramate being another, working the CNS. Fentramine also being used alone in that regard. There have been efforts to try and make people feel fuller with hydrogels and volume enhancers, attempts to use Orlistat to inhibit lipases and absorption of nutrients. A huge step forward has been the development of these GLP-1 receptor agonists, liraglutide and semaglutide being two examples of those that have a multiple number of effects. They work in the CNS. They are the signal that tells the brain how much we've had to eat. So they're satiety signals. They help do that by also slowing gastric emptying, so can help with feeling full and that sense of satiety. There's also effects on lipolysis as well. There are additional agents like terzepatide, liraglutide, and sermaglutide, and we have more drugs to come. Yet another reason why, as cardiologists, we need to think about this because we have oral GLP-1 receptor agonists. We have an increasing number of analogs that combine different agents, and so there's going to be more to come. But we already have many of these tools now, and our focus here today, of course, is on these GLP-1 receptor agonists. So this is a nice summary of what we've seen with some of the current anti-obesity medications and then also a glimpse at some of the emerging ones for which we have more data coming. And here you see the mean weight change from baseline with these agents, Orlistat being the lipase inhibitor, the hydrogel, and the GLOW study. These were sort of modest decreases. You see the comparison groups in orange, where in many of these trials, people lose weight even more than what we see in practice very often. With fentramine to pyramine conquer, if you do it in comparison to placebo, sort of a 7% weight loss there. Naltrexone, bupropion, roughly 5% placebo controlled. And then with liraglutide and semaglutide, you see this bigger step up in the trials using those. With liraglutide, again, comparison to placebo. And again, the point that this is more than what we often see in practice, but roughly a 6% decrease with semaglutide in the step one trial, much more significant, 14.8%. We've had additional data with semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams 
subcutaneously. In step three, 16% versus 5.7% on placebo. In step four, 17.4% versus 5% on placebo. And then some of these other agents, terzepatide, 15% versus 3.1% in the placebo group. And then the surmount trial, which was almost 21% reduction in weight. And we're going to touch base on the OASIS-1 trial, which was to study oral semaglutide. And here you see in the emerging AOMs, the semaglutide has a 50 milligrams PO, more significant weight loss than what we saw with those older agents before we got to GLP-1s. And so... Clearly, we've had progress with more effective agents in that regard. And that's true for these GLP-1 receptor agonist-based and JMPC medications. This is additional data from step one. You do see that there are individual variations in weight loss trajectories. Some people respond even more significantly. And it's going to be interesting as we get more and more data to understand what determines the extent of weight loss that someone has. One of the things that comes up often that patients ask me, and certainly relevant for the field, is, well, will I need to stay on this for good? And we'd like to think that that might not necessarily be the case, but the fact is the evidence has been very suggestive that people do have to stay on these agents in order to maintain their improvements in weight. And when they stop these drugs, they often will come back up. And so in the vast majority of cases, this is usually going to be a chronic therapy Now, this I think is important because it goes back to that idea of the number of parameters that can improve around weight loss. And so with the decrease in weight here, you can see that certainly for the newer GLP-1 receptor agonists, improvements in blood pressure, that wasn't always the case with some of the older agents. The LDL will go down as people lose weight and can be an important additional adjunctive intervention to patients you might have who are on a statin. We often see improvements in the triglycerides, and very often that goes hand in hand with increases in HDL as the triglycerides come down. We don't know the clinical significance of that in terms of the HDL, but we're always happy when we see the triglycerides going down. It usually means an improved cardiometabolic picture. And then, of course, A1Cs tend to go down as well. And so, you know, much bigger impact on this overall picture of cardiometabolic status as people lose weight. We have had an increase in requirements for safety that really go back to 2012 and went hand-in-hand with increased demands for safety for diabetes agents. And we also have had challenges with those other agents in knowing that safety signals are being achieved. The LIGHT study involved naltrexone and bupropion actually did not meet that FDA standard of safety. And a claim was a planned trial with fentanyl and topiramate, and that hadn't even been initiated. So the safety issues, of course, on our mind. The notion for pursuing this for cardiovascular benefit was based upon preclinical studies and early human studies suggesting that the GLP-1 pathway could exert benefits on many different components of inputs that can infect the cardiovascular system, whether it's directly in terms of protecting the heart and where GLP-1 receptors may be, effects on platelets, on postprandial lipids, on glucose, as we talked about, effects on inflammation, body weight, blood pressure, even on the kidney 
with naturesis and diuresis that really supported the idea of pursuing this for cardiovascular benefit. Those receptors are present in the heart. They're present in the blood vessels. And we have lots of evidence supporting benefits on things like endothelial function, changes in responses among the cellular components of the arterial wall that are all supportive of the idea that this could have an impact on cardiovascular outcomes. Now, We've had cardiovascular outcome trials in diabetes, and this is one collection of some 23 trials, 181,000 plus patients. And this is just pulling out the GLP-1 receptor data, which is really supportive and suggestive of these various trials suggested potential benefits on kidney outcomes, on stroke, on major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE, cardiovascular deaths, all-cause death, heart failure, non-fetal MI. And of course, the benefits that were seen in the diabetes trial continued to push us forward. The STEP trials were a series of registration studies for semaglutide. This is pooling data in STEP 1, 3, 6, and 8, and looking at what happened in terms of antihypertensive and lipid-lowering treatment in these STEP trials. So you can see the ends here for the numbers of patients. It's less than what we see when we get to big cardiovascular outcome trials. But you can see that in comparison to placebo, you were having effects reducing the amount of antihypertensive use or even being able to stop antihypertensives as a result of this differential effect on body weight and similar kinds of patterns when you look at the need for lipid-lowering agents. In OASIS-1, we also had signals again in sort of early looks at an oral agent, oral semaglutide, and changes in cardiovascular risk. And you can see some trends there with weight loss. As people lost more weight, you had better improvements in terms of lowering systolic blood pressure, non-HDL effects on reducing CRP and inflammation as a result of those changes. And I also want to mention another aspect that has gotten a lot of attention in the cardiology community as we think a little bit more carefully about different kinds of heart failure and the prevalence of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Lots of interesting mechanisms invoke related to that. Fat mediators like leptin, but also activation of renin aldosterone, which of course impacts plasma volume, sodium levels, inflammation that can contribute to fibrosis, arterial stiffness, changes in the kidney. And so lots of connections between obesity and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And aside from HFPEF, the other one I want to highlight is the very strong data for how weight loss can improve and decrease the chances for recurrent atrial fibrillation. There are similar studies that show improvements of recurrent atrial fibrillation even after ablation. And so I often point this out to patients who we've either converted back into sinus rhythm or undergone ablation, that if they really don't want to go through that again, we have to think about getting their weight down. And you see here this you know stepwise relationship of freedom from atrial fibrillation as you go from increase in weight to greater than or equal to 10% weight loss, really a change in their freedom for atrial fibrillation, I think is very compelling and quite important, really puts this front and center for us as cardiologists to think about this. We've also had evidence from that same step one trial that you have to continue the drug to continue those benefits. And this is just showing the data of what happens as patients came off agents with follow-up during an extension phase and increases in systolic and diastolic blood pressure, which goes hand-in-hand with the increase in weight. 
Now, we're very excited to be having the SELECT trial. The study looked at 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide in people who had high risk of cardiovascular events because of a prior history of ASCVD, but who did not have diabetes. So these individuals could have prior cardiovascular events, stroke, peripheral arterial disease. And this is what I'm always looking for for clinical trials. One of the reasons why and so many are excited about SELECT is I want to overlap it with the patients I'm seeing in clinic. And so the typical SELECT patient are the kinds of patients I see all the time when I'm on inpatient duty or when I'm in clinic getting referred a patient. So significantly elevated BMI, 82% had hypertension, 76% had a prior MI, 66% had prediabetes but did not have frank diabetes, nearly a quarter had heart failure, one form or another, including HEFPEF, and a significant percentage with HEFREF. 10.8% had EGFRs less than 60. And because these are high-risk patients, they're getting treated for hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, dyslipidemia. They're on antiplatelet agents. And you know this is a real-world scenario in terms of what their LDLs were. 90% were on some form of drug therapy, 91% on antihypertensives, 86% on a platelet inhibitor, consistent with their having this cardiovascular history. The baseline blood pressure, 131 over 79, and the LDL 78. So maybe not perfect, but real world, this is not an LDL intervention trial. It's looking at what happens with semaglutide. And we know that we had benefits. Now we're going to be able to look even more deeply at this population once we have the full release of this. And the top line was a significant 20% reduction in MACE compared with placebo. Safe, well-tolerated, aligning with prior data. But this really is, you know, a cardiovascular trial. The data is on cardiovascular endpoints. It's really why I tell my colleagues at the Brigham and when I have a chance to speak to others, these are our endpoints. We can't look the other way and look for someone else to manage this because we're looking at improving cardiovascular outcomes. I think that all feeds into this idea of calling us as cardiologists into the management of obesity. There are many more cardiologists than there are endocrinologists. These are our endpoints and we we have to engage with this. We have trials that are very new looking at step HEFPEF. These are trials looking at semaglutide for obesity in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And that's been done both with diabetes and without diabetes. And here, summarizing that data is really very encouraging responses in terms of improvements in quality of life scales as related to that. And that as patients lost weight, one saw reduction in heart failure-related symptoms, physical limitations, improvements in exercise, ability to be more active as people lost weight, which further improves the weight loss that they might be able to achieve. The semaglutide was in these studies well-tolerated with fewer serious adverse events than even the placebo group. Now, we also have some of those newer agents like terzepatide as a combination of a GIP, GLP-1 receptor agonist that also significantly reduces weight in patients with diabetes. This is a pooled analysis suggesting that there's also going to be this impact on cardiovascular events. We have two cardiovascular outcome trials underway, surpass in patients who have diabetes and surmount MMO in people who just have obesity. Donna Rye is one of the co-investigators leading SELECT, along with Mike Linkoff, who's a cardiologist. And this is how she framed this kind of notion of these are cardiovascular issues and require our engagement of asking for permission to discuss weight, to not do that in a judgmental, stigmatizing way, but just to begin raising this as being of importance to the cardiologist to start 
looking to assess that weight, presence of obesity-related risks and complications, you know those are going to be there. Take a history that begins asking about eating patterns and activity, weight loss attempts, other impacts related to sleep and psychological status, including whether or not there's sleep apnea, talking about benefits of even modest weight loss, and beginning to think about anti-obesity medications, especially as they impact cardiovascular outcomes. I think over time, we're all going to get much more familiar and comfortable with this, but to the extent it's necessary, you can begin learning learning about this by referring patients to specialists and then having those conversations of, well, why did you do that? And reading the chart, seeing how patients do to begin becoming more and more comfortable. Some of you already are about using these drugs. As is always the case, it's helpful to anticipate for patients what they might experience. Initially, some patients have some degree of nausea, not everyone, and to differing degrees, but saying this may happen, it's part of how it works. It will get better. It's part of the signal for satiety or you're feeling fuller. Then you start with the lowest dose and you titrate slowly. Someone's not doing well, you back off and then can often continue to titrate over time. If you have a patient not doing well, of course, then you might say, well, let's just stop completely and get help from an expert in the area or revisit that. It's always helpful to make sure you feel comfortable with the safety considerations, even though these drugs are very well tolerated and patients do very well on them. But, you know, if a patient has a history of gallbladder issues, if they have acute kidney injury and issues, they have pancreatitis has been a concern, although we haven't seen that in the cardiovascular outcome trials versus placebo, but it's still there. If a patient has medullary thyroid cancer, MEN2, or family history of those problems, then you're not going to use these agents. And then feeling comfortable with renal dose considerations, meraglutide, initiating or escalating semaglutide monitoring among patients who are having adverse reactions, GI reactions, you know, monitoring here, tricepatide, similar kinds of issues of monitoring. When someone's having severe GI issues, maybe they're getting dehydrated, setting themselves up. But again, I think you will find, as we have, that these agents can be used. It's not complicated to use them. And initiating and titrating is really the way to go. And you'll see that your familiarity with them will improve along the way. So obesity is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We consistently see the evidence for worsening outcomes that warrants attention and discussion and appropriate treatment across the spectrum of lifestyle to drug therapy. Cardiologists are very well positioned to counsel individuals about this and how that weight loss can impact their cardiovascular future, their overall cardiometabolic health through weight loss, combined with lifestyle interventions, but that is often not enough. And so when that has not succeeded, combining that with the tools we have available is part of the strategy here can improve outcomes. We have evidence from select oasis or mounts that targeting this GLP-1 receptor pathway can really make a difference. And that that difference is not just because the weight is going down and patients are feeling better, but because you're actually reducing cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular events, and perhaps along with it, some of these other issues that patients encounter as a consequence of being overweight or obese. So that concludes our discussion for today. Please be on the lookout for two companion activities in this educational collection that will view the latest clinical trial data from ongoing anti-obesity medication investigations. Hope you found this activity to be informative and useful to your practice. Encourage you to participate in these other activities that are part of this curriculum. I do think they will be helpful tools in terms of using these therapeutic agents to improve outcomes for our patients. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening.
download materials, and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DDA 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.